Welcome to episode 102, Minding the Gap, Connecting Trauma Work with the 12 Steps, featuring Dr. Jamie Marich, Licensed Professional Clinical Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Back in 2010, I was offering a day-long continuing education seminar on the interplay and intersection between trauma and addiction. As I often do in such a course, I brought up 12-step recovery. I discussed what 12-step recovery can and does offer to individuals who are seeking relief from an addictive or other compulsive disorder. And I also discussed some of the problems that we can see in 12-step recovery both in meetings that happen in the community and in treatment centers that have a strong 12-step focus. Over the break and indeed after the course, I was inundated with quite a bit of feedback. Some of the feedback I got suggested that, wow, it's really nice to hear you not disparage the 12 steps. Several of the folks in attendance were themselves part of 12-step programs and had noted that in the past several years, of becoming further trained in trauma modalities, that presenters really seem to take a negative attitude about 12-step recovery, truly discounting whether or not it was still relevant in modern treatment, especially with our focus moving more towards trauma-informing and trauma-focusing care. And I also had feedback from other attendees who said, wow, it's really nice to hear you talk about the 12 steps in a different way because so much of the information they were working on about 12-step recovery is that it is outdated, it is antiquated, that it is very rigid and very trauma ill-informed for working with individuals who are coming into treatment and recovery in the modern era. And I smiled very widely hearing all of the feedback because I really knew that so much of my job and my mission was to be a bridge between the two worlds recognizing that trauma has to be addressed as part of comprehensive addiction healing and addiction treatment, yet also realizing that 12-step recovery can still contain a lot of value for individuals who are seeking to develop a daily lifestyle change, a daily psychic shift, who want healing from addiction. And Yes, 12-step recovery, whether it is being offered in community-type meetings or whether it is present in treatment in one form or another, can come with a whole host of problems, some of which we'll talk about on this podcast. Yet I've also felt it's important not to throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater, that there are still a lot of gems that can be mined from 12-step recovery in working with individuals, even in the modern era, even in a more trauma-informed and trauma-focused lens. I'm Dr. Jamie Marich, and I'll be guiding you through this course today. And I feel before we get into any more of the content that it's important to give you a little bit of my perspective here on the voices that I will be sharing with you as we go through this content on trauma and the 12 steps. So personally, I am an individual in long-term recovery. I have 18 years of continuous sobriety from drugs and alcohol. And it is important to disclose that one of the reasons I still speak in favor of 12-step recovery is that I am one of the millions of people who have been helped by a 12-step program. But I think it, it has more finesse than that because one of the reasons that 12-step recovery truly worked for me is that I was guided and mentored by an initial sponsor. Uh, and the term sponsor in 12-step recovery is basically a guide or a mentor that you're encouraged to choose at one of the local community-based meetings who will walk you through the steps and help ask your answer, rather, your initial questions that you may ask about recovery. Sponsors are not professional. Sponsors are not meant to be anything other than what I just described. So my first sponsor 
happened to be a clinical social worker, but she did not work with me in that capacity. But I do think that a lot of her training as a clinical social worker did make her more trauma-informed than your typical sponsor that would come through a standard meeting that you might find in the community. And when I wrote the first edition of Trauma and the 12 Steps in 2012, I gave an interview and somebody asked me at that point what my goal was for writing this book and getting this Trauma and the 12 Steps work out into the world. And my answer was quite simple. And that is, it is my wish, it is my desire, it is my great hope that anybody coming in to a 12-step context, whether that be a meeting in the community or a treatment center, could be treated the same way that Janet treated me. When I met her in 2001, she was the very picture of being able to meet me where I was at. She didn't try to evangelize me, proselytize me. She was not rigid in how she delivered the concepts of 12-step recovery. But she simply took the initial mission and aim of 12-step programming to heart, which is that she was simply one alcoholic addicted person who was helping another, in that case it was me, that was reaching out for help. So the story of how I got sober is actually very closely aligned with the story of how I got into this field. And as I share this story with you, I encourage you to listen to it with a clinical ear. And notice as I share this story with you what it was that Janet really did correctly from a trauma-informed perspective, as opposed to maybe some other stories you've heard, either from your experience or in the community about where 12 steps may have gone wrong, or not the steps themselves, but the way that some sponsors or counselors may have approached the steps with their rigidity, where it may have turned off a person as opposed to really embraced and welcomed a person in as Janet embraced and welcomed me. So when people ask me how I get into the field, the answer is totally through the back door. I actually began as an English teacher and that was my first major job and uh, had a lot of background in cultural studies, history, performing arts. And in 2000, I ended up moving to Bosnia-Herzegovina, Bosnia, which was one of the countries of the former Yugoslavia that experienced a horrible civil war from 1991 to 1995. My family is Croatian, which is one of the countries that declared independence, Croatia, and, and was affected. And during my high school years, I had followed what was happening with the war very intently because of family that was still in the country. And then after completing my undergraduate degree, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And I was also struggling with my own addiction and mental health concerns. And so to make a very long story short, I moved pretty randomly to, to Croatia and then ultimately Bosnia. And I ended up getting a job working in humanitarian aid. So I was working primarily for a children's home that was run by a Catholic church. I kind of tried to pursue religion as a way to help me deal with a lot of my personal demons. And through that process, I was still struggling. I wasn't using drugs as much, but I was definitely still drinking. And in the summer of 2001, I ended up meeting Janet, my, my first sponsor who I told you about. So Janet is a woman uh, who is from Ohio here in the U.S. Weirdly enough, I'm from Ohio. We only lived about 45 minutes away. And here we met in, in Europe, uh, both doing aid work together. So Janet had been on 12 humanitarian missions during the war itself. And in her retirement, she felt the call to settle in Bosnia for a time to help with some aid work and to help get some initial treatment centers really built and structured in the country. And part of her work was to also get some AA meetings started. So I met her, liked her, didn't meet her in any kind of recovery context at first. We shared the Ohio connection, obviously. And my first personal exposure to anything recovery related was to go to a meeting with her. It was not a 12-step meeting, but it was what essentially would be a county council on alcoholism type of meeting. And I was not a professional translator, but I was good in a pinch, and she didn't have a translator available for her that day. 
So I went and I translated the meeting and I noticed that there were a lot of concepts that really resonated with me. Uh, she ended up giving me the AA text or what's called the AA big book in Croatian uh, to read. And she was very smart. She said, here, it might help you learn some of the words. And there was something about her that I liked. She was very folksy, very pleasant. She took an interest in answering my questions. So a month later, when I had a pretty significantly bad thing happen to me that, that caused me to use drugs again, I knew that I could talk to her. I knew that I could go and I could speak with her. And I asked her uh, during that first big conversation we had, I remember we spent three hours together. It was an August day of 2001. And I asked her, you know, am I just crazy? <laughs> Is that why I'm struggling like this? Because uh, there's a history of, of some mental illness in my family, and I thought I had just picked up on a lot of that, or maybe it was a sin problem, which is a lot of what I had been raised to believe. And when I shared with her my backstory and what I like to call my life in chemicals, she ended up saying to me, Jamie, the good news here is that you're alcoholic, that you're addicted. And I asked her how that was good news. And she said, it's good news because we know what to do about it, because it is a disease that we can treat. And so this is the first point of clarification here that we'll explore a little later, that there is controversy in the modern era about whether or not the disease model of addiction, which is really in line with the Alcoholics Anonymous approach, whether it is still sufficiently trauma-focused. But what I want to share with you in the context of giving you a little bit of my backstory is how the disease model was presented to me in a way that was definitely trauma-focused. Because as I've alluded to, I grew up in a pretty religious construct context. And addiction, alcoholism, was essentially explained as a sin problem. And even folks that I grew up with mocked this idea that addiction was an illness or a disease, rather that it was a sin manifestation that had to be addressed on that level. And part of my struggle was I couldn't figure out that even when I did things right, religiously or spiritually, at least according to the churches that I had been uh, involved with, because I, uh, I had one evangelical parent, one Catholic parent, and God knows I had tried both churches and tried doing the things the right way in both contracts, and I was still really struggling. And what Janet helped me to explain is that's because addiction is a disease. And I, I couldn't really grasp that at first based on the information I was raised with. And she explained to me that what makes it a disease is that it is a medical problem, that there is something different about my brain. And yes, the debates can still rage about whether it's nature, nurture, or a combination of the two, or if unhealed trauma can be part of what causes that defect in the brain, which now I very much believe it can. But whatever may have caused it, she helped me to understand that, that my brain's relationship with alcohol and drugs was just not appropriate, if we're really kind of summarizing it here. And that treatment or um, professional help or the... I guess the small T treatment that meetings and, and the self-help context of 12-step can offer might help give me some tools and some capacity to arrest this disease to keep it from developing further because I was only 22 years old at the time. So speaking from my lived experience personally, what she shared with me filled me with a lot of hope. And that's one of the reasons that I still believe there is some relevance to consider addiction as a disease. That disease does not have to be a stigmatizing word. It can imply there is a medical problem here that needs treatment to be addressed. And especially coming from what was called this moral model. And the moral model or the sin model is really what predated the establishment of alcoholic Anonymous in 1935. Since 1952, the American Medical Association has considered addiction to be a disease. And prior to that, the, the common explanation was that this was a sin problem or a sin manifestation. And the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935, the, the program that gave us the 12 steps and the advocacy that really followed from that 
did begin to create more of a cultural shift, especially in North America, around how we define and describe what's going on here. So as part of our initial conversation, she really helped me to embrace this idea that this was a medical issue. And although at the time I did not have access to professional treatment, I felt comfortable in that I did not have an immediate detox need, that, that I was not in active withdrawal. And I felt safe enough working with her as my sponsor. And she really did work with me more in the role of sponsor, but because of, of her trauma background, she, um, I, I knew that there was something there that I felt safe enough. So in those first couple months, I started going to meetings, as she suggested. I started learning the steps. I started learning coping skills and coping tools. Um, I wasn't really quite convinced that I had an alcohol problem, although I was convinced I, I had an issue with drugs. And she really worked with me on helping me to understand that one will probably lead you to the other. So it doesn't really make, make sense to split hairs a lot about it. So a couple months later, I ended up having a pretty significant traumatic reaction at my work site. And my, my superior, my supervisor, who, who was a, a really wonderful Franciscan priest, he's one of my great inspirational figures in my life, but he really didn't know what to do with this meltdown that I had at work. And he called Janet because he thought Janet could help. And Janet just very briefly explained to him, she said, Father, this, this is not like a little girl overreacting. This is a, a post-traumatic reaction. And so she took me home and like the wise woman that she was, gave me some water to drink and put a cold compress on my head and had me lay down. And she asked me some questions that really endeavored to link what my overreaction was about at work together with if things had happened to me in my past. And it was the first time anybody had ever used the word trauma to define and describe what had happened in my background. Uh, like many people in society, and dare I say like many people in the clinical professions, uh, I was still operating on this notion that trauma equated with the diagnosis of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. I had no real formal psychology training at that point, aside from a few classes I took in undergrad, but I, I knew about PTSD. And I knew that PTSD was typically a diagnosis that was reserved for veterans. And that, that didn't really apply to me. And something she, she talked about even on that first day is, Jamie, would you consider that what we're defining as a war can be very subjective here. And that war zone was possibly how you grew up, what you had to, what you had to deal with at school, the pain and torture and misery that, that you put yourself through in your room every night when you were, or most nights when you were self-injuring. So her explaining it that way was able to really help me validate what I went through in my own experience as trauma. And something we'll talk about here as we shift into even more of the professional content is how trauma is very subjective. It is very much how the individual is defining it. Uh, yet there was something about her approach with me that made me know, wait, there's something here. There's something here. And in those early conversations and, and working together, uh, Janet ended up saying something that not only changed my life personally, but has ended up being the foundation of how I work with clients. And it has ended up being the foundation of how I teach others to work with clients. And she said, Jamie, after everything you've been through, what you've told me about your story and your struggles, it's no wonder you became alcoholic. It's no wonder you became addicted. What are you going to do about it now? So I encourage you to listen to that wisdom again with the clinical ear and notice what you're hearing. She said, Jamie, after everything you've been through, it's no wonder you became addicted. What are you going to do about it now? And that wisdom taught me the power of validating someone first and then challenging them. You do have to do both, but it is very important that we do it in that order. In trauma circles, we talk quite a bit about the healing power of validation. 
and how so many folks who are coming to us for care and services have never been validated. Their experiences have never been validated or framed as traumatic, that they've never been taught or shown that you're allowed to feel what you feel. And the simple action of validation, especially from a person-centered therapy perspective, can go such a long way. And this is a lot of what Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, the first uh, gentlemen who are credited as the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, discovered that there is healing power in validation of experience. There is healing power in connection. And that's very much what Janet did with me, not only validating my addiction parts of my story, but also validating that so much of what I experienced was definitely traumatic. After she validated me, then she challenged me. She called me into action. What are you going to do about it now? And I mentioned this to make a commentary here that in clinical professions, I mean, and I don't think it's lost on any of our listeners who are clinicians, that there does tend to be this fissure, right, between drug and alcohol counseling, addiction counseling over here and rehabs and treatment and the mental health community some of which is more trauma-informed than others. So I think it already speaks to what a lot of the problem is, that the, the two fields really, even after all these years, are still kind of divorced in a lot of ways or have never really come together in a lot of ways. And that's a concept we may explore here in a little bit. But I will say, as somebody who has navigated both worlds, because I'm credentialed both as an addiction professional and as a mental health professional, I see treatment doing more of the challenging and not enough of the validating. And I see a lot of trauma-focused professionals doing a lot of the validating without a heck of a lot of the challenging that may be necessary here to really help individuals who struggle with addiction to develop a different lifestyle. So one of the traditional modes here of... And I think it's important to to take a moment here and make a a couple key distinctions, both what about 12 steps mean and about what trauma means. So on the 12 step side of things, it, it is not lost on me. And I want to very clearly state that when we talk about 12 step recovery, it can really refer to two things. On one hand, it can refer to the non-professional component of 12-step recovery that takes place in meetings all over the country and all over the world. And the founding of 12-step recovery is credited to the original 12-step fellowship, which was Alcoholics Anonymous, founded in 1939 by Wilson and Smith, as I mentioned. And it was always designed to be non-professional. It was really based on this kind of therapeutic wisdom, if you will, of one alcoholic helping another and then continuing to carry the message on to the next person. And from those original foundings of their simple conversation, meetings developed, literature developed, and even though there was a non-professional component to it, a lot of advocacy naturally flowed from that, especially as people in the community became very impressed by what they see Alcoholics Anonymous able to do in settings where professional treatment had failed. Uh, Even Carl Jung, uh, one of the great fathers of our field, is known for writing a letter endorsing Alcoholics Anonymous, speaking about a case of what he called a hopeless alcoholic that he treated that he was not able to touch with psychoanalysis, but there was something about what he called the psychic spiritual change that Alcoholics Anonymous offered that helped this individual in a way that he couldn't. So on the one hand, our 12 steps can refer to the non-professional manifestations of, of the program, which is it in its original form. And from Alcoholics Anonymous spawned hundreds of other fellowships that also used the 12 steps. Most famously, the initial spinoffs were Al-Anon, which are the family programs of Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, were designed to use the same 12 steps, but to work with family members. And then, of course, Narcotics Anonymous uh, 
came to be in the, in the early 50s and then many, many other 12-step programs like Workaholics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous. There's about three or four different versions of sex recovery fellowships that use uh, the 12 steps. So it really did spawn a phenomenon, if you will, culturally. And naturally that, that trickled over to the professional side of things. So even though Alcoholics Anonymous itself, as it states in the traditions, is forever non-professional, treatment centers, especially in the 1950s, really became a thing. Uh, an entity separate from traditional psychiatric or mental health care that naturally integrated a lot of 12-step concepts, but were not in and of themselves 12-step recovery. And when we're talking about the use of 12-step recovery in professional treatment, this is where some of the controversy can ensue. Because 12-step recovery, remember, is designed to be non-professional. It is not ever meant to be a replacement for professional treatment. And when you look at the research in the addiction community or in the uh, addiction studies field, um, it goes both ways when it comes to 12-step recovery. A, a lot of it depends on who's studying it, who's examining it, and from what perspective. But one thing is really clear, and that is the 12 steps themselves are not professional treatment or intervention. Uh, there is a format called 12-step facilitation that was developed in the early 2000s that works in a group setting to teach people 12-step concepts. Uh, a lot of forms of therapeutic approach like DBT, CBT, uh, Gestalt works very well in concert with the 12 steps. Uh, but the 12 steps themselves are not ever meant to be treatment in and of themselves. And the problem is that a lot of treatment centers in North America um, have had this tendency to just pass off 12 steps as treatment, particularly if the treatment centers are largely populated by recovering people, people who are in recovery themselves with minimal clinical training. It can be very easy to slip into what you've learned from 12-step talk in the community as clinical intervention. And so obviously as somebody who, who rides the wave between both worlds, I do think both are incredibly important that yes, treatment centers have to be able to offer what is validated as professional care, both for treating addiction and for treating mental health issues that can be concurrent with addiction, while also recognizing that 12-step concepts can be an important part of what is sometimes called the self-help component that people access in the community after they leave treatment or as a way to continue to, to build proactive lifestyle change, that the 12 steps can exist as meaningful support, but they're not meant to replace uh, other treatment modalities that have been shown and demonstrated to have a role in healing addiction. But to that point, I, I think some of the criticism can be a little harsh because let's let's take a, an, an approach like DBT or dialectical behavior therapy, which is well validated. But many of the concepts in DBT, like radical acceptance, have been long used in the 12 steps, uh, particularly in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so much of what is out there in terms of professional treatment does either coincide or has a strong connection to what 12-step recovery teaches. So I tend to promote in my work that it's not a real rigid separation, but rather by embracing a both and, we can really be in the best position to serve people. But it does bear mentioning that a lot of the same problems that we see in 12-steps in the community and 12-step kind of <laughs> rigidities that may manifest in treatment centers are similar. And the one key problem is that word I've mentioned a couple times now, which is rigidity. So the 12 steps themselves, if you're not familiar with them, they can be easily looked up online. Uh, the first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable and then continue to lie out steps that you can take to help change your perspective. 
what is interesting is that the steps themselves, according to this big book or text of Alcoholics Anonymous, are meant to be suggestive only. And I like to point that out when I encounter people either in treatment contexts or in the community who tend to get very, well, this is the way it's done. This is the way it's done. This is what the steps say. But even the founders in the book that gave us the steps really did set them up as they are suggestive only. And in my view, to say that anything is simply a suggestion or an invitation automatically can make it more trauma-informed because we're not forcing it on people, we're simply suggesting it or inviting it. And it bears repeating that many people who are part of 12-step communities, who sponsor or who counsel, have forgotten that, that the steps are meant to be suggestive only, because when we get into these rigidities, this is where we can actually cause greater harm. So the steps themselves can be, and a lot of the recommendations in the book and even some of the the folk wisdom that has been passed down through meetings can be an excellent way for an individual to experience lifestyle change. And that is one of the reasons I have remained a fan of 12-step recovery is the impact that 12-step recovery can have on a person making meaningful shifts in lifestyle. Just as a quick sidebar, when I was working on my doctorate, I, that's when I first really became illuminated to this controversy about 12 steps are still great and should be honored versus the 12 steps are, are useless or they're outdated. And especially as somebody who had been helped by a 12-step program, who had continued to experience benefit from a 12-step program, I was truly interested because I also had a lot of trauma stewardship in my heart to want to do the right thing when it came to trauma as as a budding professional. So I became very interested in really exploring and unpacking this controversy a little bit. And in looking at 12-step recovery together with many of the 12-step alternatives that exist out there, uh, because there are fellowships that exist as alternatives to 12-step. There are programs like Smart Recovery that don't work with spiritual concepts at all, but it's all very cognitive. And then you have programs like Rational Recovery, which are very diametrically opposed to 12-step recovery. And in fact, a lot of their dialogue is, uh, or presentation, I should say, really is built on what's wrong with the 12-steps. So Looking at all of the different programs and pathways out there, the one common denominator I was able to find was lifestyle change. That what any really good recovery program could do or recovery pathway can do is help a person experience some degree of lifestyle change that is essential for meaningful recovery. So interestingly enough, the word lifestyle was first coined by Alfred Adler in the 1920s. And he defined lifestyle, he had it as two words at the time, lifestyle, as the things we begin doing in early life that happen as a response to our own inferiority. So even there, we're potentially seeing a trauma connection, right? And he defined and described the lifestyle as a pair of glasses. That was the metaphor he used. And that what meaningful change was about is developing a way to get a new prescription on those glasses. And sometimes we may have to chuck the pair of glasses that we're working with all together and just get a new pair of glasses. And that's even a term that, that's used in, in some 12-step folk sayings that, hey, you got to get a new pair of glasses here. So that is, to me, what healthfully delivered 12-step recovery can still offer to people, particularly if you have a sponsor like Janet was to me, that is not rigid, is not dogmatic, is not getting in your face with things like, well, you have to believe in God, or you have to have a higher, higher power, or you're never going to make it. And we also see problems where sponsors and counselors and, and treatment settings could say things like, unless you do it exactly my way, you're never going to make it, which is not only, to me, goes against what 12-step programming originally taught, but... Um, is very egocentric on the part of the person delivering that and could be very shaming to the person who's receiving it. So considering all that, 
and realizing where 12-step recovery can still have its benefits for people. This is where some of the rigidities can manifest. And once again, I will explain the rigidity by telling you a story, another great formational story of my life and my career. So in 2004, I began working in the field formally because, yes, Janet sent me back to graduate school after I had a little bit of recovery under my belt. And after getting licensed, I I worked in a treatment center. It was a very well-known treatment center. Uh, and, yes, there was a strong 12-step ethic at the treatment center, which initially I liked as as somebody who, who liked the 12 steps. But... I grew very disturbed by the way that I saw trauma being ignored at, at said, said treatment center. And I noticed that a lot of people kept coming in and out of treatment, that it was typically the same folks who would keep coming back over and over again. And they were usually the folks who had the hardest lives and had most struggled. And I asked my clinical director at the time, why aren't we doing anything here to address trauma? And he said to me very plainly, this is not our job to address trauma, that our job here is to get people initial recovery and to get people to recognize that they are addicts with a disease. And until they realize that they're addicts with a disease, uh, they're just muddying the water with everything else. Uh, Obviously, that did not resonate with me, (laughs) Uh, at least did not resonate with my experience, because I was very blessed to have had that initial exposure to recovery as somebody who helped me to see just how much unhealed trauma was a factor in what I had experienced. And then even um, at two years sober, when I started doing my graduate internship, uh, I was being triggered pretty significantly. And at that point, I was sent for more counseling. I had a uh, colleague, a a fellow trainee who did an intervention on me and pointed out that I'd been dissociating a lot at work or at this internship site and that I had better do more counseling because if I didn't, I would never make it in the field. And it turns out he was right. And that's when EMDR and other trauma work came into my life to help me to at least be able to sustain employment. And that was at two years or so sober. And so it was very clear to me that if I didn't address these deeper trauma wounds, I may not have made it past the time that that I had. And I saw some of the same trauma wounds show up with, with people at the treatment center, and I was really mystified why we weren't doing anything about it. So needless to say, it was like fighting a losing battle, because no matter what I argued or contended, I got more of that same that until they realize they're addicts, you're just muddying the water dealing with trauma. And sadly, all these years later in 2020, I still hear some of that talk coming out of some treatment centers. Uh, I wrote an article last year called You Can't Shut Down Trauma because I, I heard through some people I trained that their clinical director was saying, hey, if trauma comes up in groups or in an assessment, you got to shut it down because we're not equipped to deal with it here. And Part of me does understand the intent of that statement, that our staffing may be not sufficient to really give people the individual care that they may need and and groups. Um, It may not be the optimal place to go into deep trauma work. Uh, Sometimes that sentiment comes from we don't really have adequate time to be working with people. But the reality is you cannot shut down trauma because unhealed trauma will manifest in a variety of behavioral ways, including acting out in the setting, including perhaps shutting down or getting overreactive when you're emotionally triggered. And part of trauma work in the treatment setting may not be doing the deep digging. It could be teaching people skills that are proactive at a body level, skills like breathing, skills like moving the body in a strategic way, taking walks, doing art, things that get us into our whole selves instead of just talking, 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 talking. And the reality is one of the greatest interventions that we can do as treatment professionals, and I think this would apply to sponsors as well, is validation. Um, Katie Evans and James Sullivan put out a beautiful book in 1995. It was one of the first I read that really looked at the overview 
of trauma and addiction. And something they said in that that has stuck with me to this day is that recognizing this history of trauma strengthens treatment. So that even if you have to relate to a client, we don't have to get into every little detail right now because you're only going to be here for so many days and we don't want to get into what we may not have time to fully explore. Yet I hear you. I hear this as part of your story. I think of what Janet said to me after everything you've been through. No wonder. So let's help you develop a plan. So initial treatment, initial engagement in 12-step programming in the community may be the best time to help build that plan. But that is still part of trauma treatment. So I hope in this talk that I've given to you so far on the podcast, we've seen what some of the problems can be. But we've also seen it in the context of what a lot of the solutions can be too. Something I didn't do, which I ought to have done earlier, but in the flow it's coming up now, is to give you a good operational definition of what is even meant by trauma. And then to distinguish what the differences are here between more trauma-informed care and trauma-focused care. So trauma, if we're keeping it very simple, means wound. Trauma, the English word trauma, comes from the Greek word meaning wound. So when I, as a professional, am asked for my working definition of trauma, it is simply any unhealed wound. And that wound can be physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, financial, um, any unhealed wound. And if you really want to understand trauma, you got to look beyond the PTSD diagnosis, as I talked about earlier, that from a larger global humanitarian perspective, working with trauma is working with unhealed wounds. And to really begin to explore that, start with what you know about physical wounds and how they heal. So what you may be thinking of is that wounds can come in all shapes and sizes. Wounds can take a very short time to cause and a very long time to heal. Wounds need to heal from the inside out. That yes, we may need to stabilize wounds from the outside in, wash them out, bandage them, stitch them. And this is part of what I'm getting at is what initial treatment may be designed to do. What recovery in the community may be designed to do is that wound stabilization, yet we are still doing it with regard to the fact that there is a wound there. And then yes, maybe after initial treatment or as part of extended treatment, you work with professionals who may feel a little more equipped to go there with the deeper trauma healing. But that stabilization is a very important part, but it's not enough to just keep putting the Band-Aid on over and over and over and over again. And I fear that that's what happens in our field and in our recovery communities when we don't encourage people to go deeply enough. When we say things like in the community, don't drink and go to meetings, which can often get tossed around in in 12-step context, it takes a lot more than that. Another problem that we can see pervasively, especially in 12-step meetings, is when sponsors or uh, people who've been around that are very rigid in their own right will say, you just need God and coming to meetings and the program and uh, really will down-talk psychiatry or counseling. When it is plain as day in the text of Alcoholics Anonymous that outside help may be needed. Bill Wilson endorsed it, and yet so many people in the program who are caught up in their own rigidities may discourage it. And that doesn't do service to anybody. And so, as you can probably tell from listening to me, I am a fan of all of the above. I am a fan of both and. And if anything in this process is is keeping you as a guide, as a professional, as a sponsor from doing that, it may be time to check where some of your own rigidity may be getting in the way. And another problem that I can see in 12-step recovery is when we don't validate, when we take attitudes like, well, it worked this way for me, so it'll work this way for you. So going back to the wound care metaphor, I know I went on a bit of a soapbox. Uh, Wounds require care. And if you're using the physical wound as a basis for understanding, not all care necessarily has to be professional. So for instance, if a relatively healthy person scrapes their knee and they're bleeding, care may require you wash it out and you be mindful of it, maybe put a bandage on it. 
until it, it clears up again. Now, if that person is not healthy, if they're immunocompromised, which is a word we've heard a lot about with COVID, if that person has other nutritional deprivations or a, a disease like hemophilia, care may need to be professional for sure. So this speaks to this idea that trauma can be subjective and a wound in the nature of a cut or a scrape may be completely innocuous to you, but it could be something that's very pervasively uh, serious to someone else. But wounds need care, whether that care is professional or that care is more informal. So hopefully this parallel is making sense, emotional to physical, that this metaphor is making sense. And just as physical wounds require care, whether that be professional or unprofessional, the same thing with emotional wounding or spiritual wounding. And sometimes care comes in the form of a person you love or trust validating you. And that's very much the type of care Janet offered to me initially. So I can talk about this wound metaphor quite extensively. If you go to one of my resource sites, www.traumamadesimple.com, you can access a copy of a TEDx talk that I delivered in 2015, where I pretty extensively explore this trauma as wound metaphor. And one of the other points of clarity that I make there is how when our wounds remain unhealed, we can put others at risk. In physical healthcare, and a lot of you likely have more of this awareness now with COVID, there is an understanding that we can contaminate through fluids, through blood, through other bodily fluids, through what we may transmit in the way of spray. And so we talk about taking precautions, right? Masks, bandages, cleaning things up, putting the things we clean up in biohazard and, and the physical health care community has gotten more savvy to this. Yet we're still not optimally aware of the fact that unhealed wounds in an emotional sense will go on to contaminate and affect those around us, people we love. And think of any trauma survivor you have worked with and how much of it has been trauma that has been passed on, right? If they themselves grew up in an alcoholic home with these unheard or unwritten messages like don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, these implied messages, that's completely antithetical to validation. And so one of the simple messages we can really embrace as clinical professionals is that it may all start with the power of validation, but to also realize that some challenge into action may be required as well, that it is important that we embrace the both hand and it's important that we do it in order. So being trauma-informed, which is a word that I have used quite a bit throughout this podcast, means that whatever role you are in as a clinical professional, as a person in recovery who may work with others, that you're making a commitment to do no harm or to minimize harm because you understand what trauma is and the impact of trauma on the human experience. And that when people act out, it may be through no choice of their own, but it's rather because their stuff connected to trauma has remained unhealed. And what deep healing, deep treatment has to be about is helping people heal from the inside out. And until that happens, you may see the same symptom loops happening over and over again. Being trauma-informed recognizes that we first validate before we challenge. Because if you just try to challenge or tough love a person to death, it is going to shut them down at the level of the brain. And then being trauma focused is, a, is another term that's been in wider use. And that's something that you as a listener may or may not be in an optimal position to do based on your clinical setting. But that means that you're committed to helping a person go to the heart, to the core of their wounds and helping them heal. So for instance, as an expressive arts therapist, as an EMDR therapist and trainer, that is a big part of what I do with my clients and with people that I teach. And I recognize that helping others really get to the core is a vital part of what it takes to actually end suffering and bring about meaningful change. Yet, remember what I said earlier, that stabilizing the wound 
may first be important in that process. And this is where I can see 12-step recovery and other similar approaches that we do in traditional treatments still being very relevant and to notice the importance of everything really working together. One final area here that I want to explore, and it really is a call to action for our field if you are a clinical professional. And this is a call to action whether you're working in more mental health treatment, whether you're working in addiction treatment, or whether you're working in some fusion of the two. So whether you're a professional or whether you are a member, let's say, of a 12-step community or a 12-step group, it is so important that we embrace the idea that the world has changed a lot since 1935. And in addition to COVID, which I've referenced a couple of times, there is a greater, thank goodness, there's a greater societal awareness happening now about the impact of racism and discrimination as legitimate trauma issues that can affect people's health. Something that one of my mentors, a very wise black social worker, Melita Travis Johnson, helped me to understand is that oppression can complicate the recovery process. That the trauma people experience due to racism and discrimination and quite frankly spiritual abuse that can result from people being heavily criticized and sometimes judged and condemned in the cultures in which they were raised because of who they love or how they identify that all of these things are wounds that can compound and compound and compound and if left unaddressed if left untreated can certainly complicate any process that a person may have to want to get sober or well. And indeed, so many of these traumatic issues I've just mentioned can really be what lie at the root causes. So it becomes very important in 12-step contexts for treatment providers, for people in the community to understand this, that it is not enough to take that attitude of, well, it worked for me, so this will work for you, regardless of where you come from. Yes, there may be some qualities that we all share as individuals who are in recovery, yet if you have never experienced what it's like to be so horribly criticized and scorned and shamed because of who you love, you don't know what it's like. If you don't know what it's like to live in fear on a daily basis because of where you live or because of the color of your skin, you don't know what it's like. So it becomes very important that we listen and that is another real bare minimum to being trauma-informed. And yes, as a person who is in a leadership position, as a person who may be a professional, you may be called upon to challenge, to offer solutions, to help a person examine what their goals are and help them develop a plan for change. But if you don't first do that in the context of listening and... um, Keeping your own rigidities, if they exist, out of it, you may end up alienating that person away from the support that they need. So something that I tackle quite openly in my work is how so many meetings can be rigidly discriminatory. Um, One of the dirty secrets, especially of Alcoholics Anonymous, is some meetings can get very intolerant about having uh, individuals who identify as addicts come to the meetings, even though there's so much cross-addiction that there can be such resentment about letting people who are on medically assisted treatment come to meetings. Uh, I personally have no place for that, no patience for that, because it is very clear in our uh, materials in in 12 Steps that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop, whether that be drinking or using or whatever the focus of the fellowship may be. And if we're being less than welcome to people who are seeking help in meetings, we have to look at if that is more about us and our unhealed wounding than it is about what we're putting on other people. Uh, Spiritual diversity can be a very important part of this because the 12 steps do use the word God quite a bit. Yet they also make use of the phrase higher power because many of the early founders of AA are the really recognized, or I should say the early meeting goers in AA recognize that not everybody wants that God language shoved down their proverbial throat. Uh, which Bill Wilson was often guilty of doing. And so that's when the language and construct of higher power was proposed. 
And the idea that anything could be your higher power, just as long as it's not you. So really trying to get out of so much egocentricity was the intention of that. But part of what we have to recognize is that even the language of higher power or God or spirituality concepts can be a lot for people when they're first coming into treatment or in their first coming into a 12-step context because there is such a thing as spiritual abuse, spiritual trauma. I mentioned it when I talked about my list of wounds. And I don't think as a field or as a recovery community, we are aware enough about spiritual abuse. So spiritual abuse is my, my quick and easy working definition. It's whenever God is used as the weapon, whenever God or any other spiritual construct, it could be enlightenment, is used as the weapon. And I've seen spiritual abuse happen in every mainstream religious denomination. I've seen it happen in yoga meditation communities. I've seen it happen in the 12 steps. You're not going to get sober unless you you accept God or um God's disappointed in you. I mean, I would hope a person wouldn't hear that in a 12-step context, yet it happens. And so I ask you to consider, particularly if you have worked with a client before or a sponsee before, uh, on God and spirituality, how much of what we might traditionally label resistance, quote unquote, really has to do with the aftermath and has to do with the legacy of being wounded spiritually. So this is where I've had to keep a very open mind and open ear uh, because I do believe in God and spirituality has always been important to me, even during a lot of the years that I struggled. And I personally find the language of higher power to be very inclusive. Uh, I often say that it's when I was first sitting in a 12-step meeting that I realized, wow, that God loves me, (laughs) that God is not this punishing entity that I was raised with, but it was somebody, you know, God is, is, is this being that loves me. And I take my spirituality very flexible. I, I use she, she, her pronouns in referring to God, even though the steps will use the language of him. Um, I've, I've just been mentored by a lot of great people over the years who said it doesn't really matter. And that, I know I didn't get into that too much in this podcast is a big part of what I emphasize in my work that if certain language in the 12 steps are sticking points for you, modify the language or maybe unpack with who's ever guiding you or help your clients to unpack what is it about a word like powerless or character defects that may not sit right with them. What is it about a phrase like higher power that that is a struggle? And if it is, can we either explore that struggle or can we look at a different construct? Another resource that I want to recommend is um, a, a subgroup, if you will, called Atheists and Agnostics in AA. AA Agnostica is their website. And they have their own meetings and conferences and have published some of their own literature. And it really seeks to amplify the voices and the experiences of individuals who are still interested in the 12 steps, but do identify as atheist or agnostic and who have a problem with the overt emphasis on God that can be placed in meetings, especially in certain parts of the country. Uh, For instance, in many 12-step meetings, prayers like the, the Lord's Prayer said and Uh, A gentleman I'm very close to who is a 12-stepper but also an atheist said, nowhere in our book is that said, (laughs) that that should be a part of meetings. It's just something that has culturally developed. So if so many of these things that happen in meetings or treatment centers are more of a reflection of the local culture, we may have to take a look at are these really helpful in the long run to make meeting spaces and treatment spaces as inclusive and as welcoming as possible. And to also realize that even though the God of Bill Wilson and Bob, Dr. Bob Smith was more of that Judeo-Christian God, if you will, that there is still a way to find higher power through other practices. So for instance, a, a lot of my work as a recovery individual, recovering individual, is to bring yoga-based meetings to my community. And part of what has been a real outgrowth of 12-step recovery are some more alternative meetings of that nature. Uh, Yoga of 12-step recovery is is a program that comes to mind that was developed by Nikki Myers. 
uh, Yoga of Recovery by Durga Leela. Um, th- there's, there's many that you can search. So even if you go online and search yoga and recovery, meditation and recovery, and I'm very blessed to, to just offer a couple multi-method types of recovery meetings in our community, both traditional sitting meditation and uh, yoga combined with recovery concepts, even 12-step recovery concepts. So there's a lot of great innovation that is happening that I encourage you as a professional to continue to explore and to help your clients to recognize that if they have had a negative experience in 12-step recovery before, you want to validate that experience, but maybe also help them to consider that it was a particular sponsor's view of things as opposed to what the 12 steps really ideally are meant to represent or what Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a program that is suggestive only, may ideally represent. And I tell folks all the time to not judge a meeting by just one meeting, but maybe consider going to six or eight, just like you wouldn't judge all of yoga by going to one yoga class. Maybe you try a couple different studios, a couple different classes, and see if there is, in fact, a fit that is right for you. Uh, So I still exist as somebody who lives in both, who lives in both worlds, recognizing the importance of trauma-focused care and many of the modalities that I mentioned, recognizing the importance of outside help, but also knowing that I still get a lot of what sustains me on a daily basis from approaches that I have learned in the 12 steps, that I still will use or pray prayers connected to the 12 steps on a daily basis as part of what helps me live and thrive in what I define as a recovery lifestyle on a day-to-day basis. And I hope that by listening to this presentation today, you've gotten some ideas that further inspire the both and, and that hopefully these ideas are what you can pass along to clients and to people that you serve. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.